So I would say that there is a consensus that credit is a very interesting place to be now. That's Zach Louie, founder, CEO, and chief investment officer of Arrow Global Group, a European investor and asset manager in the non-performing and non-core asset sector, and the sponsor of today's special episode. This is the second podcast in our series with Arrow, looking at the European debt opportunity. We spoke last time about the investment landscape and how it's become fragmented with the different markets around Europe, and how Arrow as a firm has sought to bring value to each of those markets by being local. Today we're discussing the private credit opportunity and thinking about the managers that can bring added value with highly targeted niche strategies in this kind of environment. I'm Andy Thompson, Senior Editor of Private Debt Investor, and this is Spotlight. I started off by asking Louis about the state of the credit market today and specifically what kinds of investment strategies he anticipates will be most popular in the coming period. From conversations with investors, he must be getting some kind of vibe. What are they telling him about the kind of strategies that they want? And how does Arrow relate to those conversations? So the first is that I think as people perceive greater risks in the macro and perceive the fluctuations of liquidity, interest rates, let alone war, recession, all the different macro concerns, that being the last dollar of equity who is most at risk, most vulnerable, is not what most investors are trying to add exposure to. By contrast, credit has two positive attributes that are attracting attention. One, of course, is that particularly for senior credits, you get the supportive enhancement of the junior equity or the capital that sits higher up the structure from you. And so your credit enhanced, and I think that degree of buffer, that resilience is highly coveted at this point in the cycle. And then I think the second is that for much of the last 15 years, there's been very little yield on offer from most types of credit, but with rising interest rates, you are achieving a much better absolute return just in the base rate environment that we see now. Credit as a whole is of interest to investors in this climate but it's invariably the case that some parts of the asset class are more attractive than others at any given point in time. I ask Louis which areas are particularly interesting right now. I think when you look at the forms of credit that are interesting, you can split it between corporate credit and real estate credit, for example. There are many different ways in Europe to play corporate credit. So you have leveraged loans, you've got bonds, you've got bank loans, you've got sponsor credit, you've got CLOs. There are many different forms of corporate credit that managers transact. And some of those markets are operating well, and some of those markets are pretty dislocated. I think real estate credit, which is where we focus, is an interesting place to be because particularly in residential real estate, there is just a structural shortage of housing in most of the European countries. And so the quality of that collateral has a rarity value. It has a significant base of demand that means that even in a down market, there's a lot of appetite for real estate. I ask him to expand on the theme. What is it that's really grabbing investors' attention? Returns and yield are what makes LP's eyes light up. Traditionally, equity and junior capital have been the parts of the capital structure to get excited about. But in this climate, it seems to be senior debt in the spotlight. When you're attaching to that real estate at a conservative loan to value, you've got a relatively safe investment. And so what we've seen is that as investors have shifted the core parts of their portfolio between core real estate, which used to yield two, three, four, and now with 
bonds yielding at least that. Core real estate has started to price at wider cap rates. You then had value add and near prime real estate, which priced wider. I, I think people are able to recreate many of those yield profiles up into the mid to high single digits and then on the opportunistic or distressed side well into teens and double digits while still having an LTV against real estate that's comparatively conservative and being the first dollar out and the secured position in the capital structure as opposed to the last dollar out and the unsecured position in the capital structure. And so I think as investors go through all of that, it's exciting. I mean, on the opportunistic side, you know, they don't have to be in the MES layer or in the equity layer or take certain types of risks to achieve their target returns. By contrast, they can be in that senior secured layer and focus on the core real estate collaterals that they like at LTVs they like and achieve attractive returns in this rate environment. It's interesting to dwell on some of the macro trends that we're seeing at the moment and how they relate to private credit. Some of the big talking points are interest rates, inflation, implications from things like energy costs, labor and supply chain issues. I ask how these things are currently impacting private credit. How do they make people look at the sector as a whole and at individual strategies within it? There are many factors one needs to consider when evaluating the private credit risks and opportunities, which I think is at the core of your question. The way I would look at it is that certain activities have natural tailwinds or easy to assess credit buffers. So, for example, the agricultural lending we mentioned earlier, I think given what's happening in Ukraine and given what's happening on supermarket shelves, it feels improbable to me that the value of agricultural land or the value of keeping your supply chain more local is going to reverse itself as a feature of either policy or buying behavior or supply chain activity. And hence, if you're a lender into that agricultural land or helping farmers build warehouses, helping farmers expand their operations, that seems like an activity that's got a pretty structural tailwind. And I think that tailwind is probably a stronger positive force than what you'd expect to see in terms of how inflation would undermine that economic progress or the creditworthiness of that particular situation. I think similarly, you look at energy transition, and I think there are many different lending activities into solar, wind, other forms of energy efficiency. We go on to discuss reactions to macroeconomic challenges. To Louis, there's a tendency to be too optimistic or not optimistic enough. The reality probably lies somewhere in between. The old adage that's never as good as it looks, but it's also never as bad as it looks, is probably apt for that dynamic. That people tend to get scared quite quickly, expect the worst in a very accelerated way. When the worst doesn't show up in an accelerated way, they then go to the opposite extreme and get quite complacent about the fact that those issues have been you know, avoided. And I'm not sure either of those were true. R raising rates against a backdrop of positive liquidity and stimulus was never going to immediately take all the liquidity out of the system. Conversely, and this does affect asset finance as well as corporate credit, it's impossible for the base interest rate that everyone discounts back at to go from zero to 4% and for that not to have an effect on valuations. I mean, it, it has effect on people's mortgages, it has effect on affordability, it has effect on what the risk-free rate is. As you factor those into asset valuations and capitalized yields, that has to, almost like gravity, play through. The fact that everything doesn't reprice immediately is, I think, a false expectation. 
The shift from 0 to 4% interest rates has happened fast, and we can, I guess, all assume that it won't be going back down to zero anytime soon. As the market adjusts to a new environment, I'm keen to find out what Arrow's priorities are and how it makes sure that it's equipped to deal with this new environment when looking at existing portfolios or when thinking about the right time to invest. There are two things I would highlight there based on experience that have served us well. So one is when you have this dynamic evolution of the outlook, it is very helpful to shorten the weighted average life of your investments. Anticipating accurate forecasts five, 10 years out is really difficult. That's why I mentioned bridge lending, where you have one year or less average lives, gives a, a certain degree of assurance that even if you suffer a reversal, it tends not to be as immediate as people think about it. I'll give you an example. So in our firm, our peak performance month was October 07 in the last cycle, and our trough performance month was June 09. And so it took 20 months to go from peak to trough. And that's with the central banks, as you'll remember, starting to intervene and the fiscal policy government action starting to try and support a rebound. And so for assets that amortize daily or weekly or monthly, I don't think you'll see a kind of cliff face deterioration of things. That's just not the way economies and asset values tend to work. It tends to be a progressive adjustment period as, as the sellers take the feedback on board and then eventually those who have to sell do and, and that resets the price points and it works its way through the system. There's currently a lot of focus on the credit secondary space, traditionally a small part of the overall secondaries market, but now growing fast. I ask how secondaries fit into Arrow's thinking what they offer in terms of portfolio construction. I think secondaries is a very interesting area for a variety of reasons that if you go back 15, 20 years, secondaries was not a mainstream investment category. And what I think people have warmed up to is that in particular in Europe, duration tends to persevere. And hence, I often think of it as a half-life decay curve you know, if something's worth 80 cents and you buy it for 50, and then that thing over time deteriorates or, or continues down its life, and maybe now it's worth 50 cents and you buy it for 20, and then some years later it's worth 12 cents and you buy it for six. There are many chances over these assets as they amortize and sell down and mature for people to enter and exit those exposures in ways that fit their risk return and duration profile. And so I think the positive attributes of secondaries are you see an asset in the wild. I mean, you see it as it is. You usually don't need to speculate on the transformation or the transition or the migration risk. You usually get to step into a deal that's already formed and is in flight, if you will. Secondaries is obviously a big talking point. Another one, when you consider the pressures building in the system, would be distress and special situations. I ask Louis how that cycle of distress is panning out and how the future is looking for distressed and special situations. So what we see there is a quite clear picture of what's happening. So we're, we're obviously one of the big distressed players in Europe. And what I would say is that there is a complete barbell going on. What you see on one side of the curve and what you see on the opposite side of the curve are very different. And the continuum in between is the empty set. 
And what I mean by that is you have people who are for sellers and people who are not. People who are not for sellers have been unwilling to take the discounts to accelerate the price adjustments we've talked about in the sense that if you were not a for seller and you owned an asset where you thought the right discount rate was 3% to create a very high MPV, but the price on the screen right now assumes a higher interest rate, a higher discount rate, and creates a, a significant loss in that MPV or price. If you're not forced to accelerate and sell right now, we've seen people unwilling to declare that today is the optimal point to sell and it's only going to get worse and rates are only going to go up. We don't see that. So we see people who have the luxury of time are willing to play the wait and see approach and not accelerate the losses or the sales at today's recapitalized value. Conversely, people who are for sellers, we do see them taking the hit that goes with factoring into business plans, all the macro worries, as well as factoring into base rate and discount rates and asset pricing, all the higher interest rates and higher risk-free rates. And so the way that's manifested in our franchise is that the Areas where we're strongest, where we're the one getting the call from the person who has to sell or where we have the operating expertise or the regulatory permission or the platform capability to do a particular asset type and the person has run out of time and is, you know, a for seller, we've seen very attractive yields and very attractive multiples and great returns. Where those things haven't been true, you have that bid ask price gap that has reduced volumes. And so what we've done is focused in the parts of our footprint where we have very strong franchise power, where we are the ones that a seller would talk to if they had to sell. And that's where we've gotten interesting investments completed. Turning to the investor side, in the fundraising environment we're in at the moment, there's the denominator effect and all sorts of other considerations LPs need to take into account which may make them encouraged by some parts of the market, but sceptical about others. It's probably more important than ever to have a competitive edge in the market today, but how do you go about ensuring you have one as a manager? And how do LPs go about the process of evaluating the types of managers they want? So I think good strategies are clearly getting funded, right? I mean, that's the dynamic. I mean, the private credit or private equity markets are very, very large, well-established, deep, and supported by a broad range of participants. And those participants experience a range of trading environments and liquidity profiles and denominator effects. And so you would expect a Middle East sovereign wealth fund to be going through a different part of the cycle, potentially, to a, a UK pension plan, which might be going through a different part of the cycle, to a Texas municipal workers plan. And so like any good business, you need to have a diversification of clients so that you can provide services and products that are interesting to them that fit what they want at that point. And so that is just up to the manager to have compelling strategies with good installed loyal client bases where you've done a good job for them and where you can therefore hopefully continue to raise attractive capital from the parts of the market that have that liquidity and that capacity to allocate. And inevitably, during environments like this, there'll be parts of that client base where that is not the case and you'll have to compensate for those accordingly. But I, I feel like many of the managers have experienced that through the cycles. I mean, we've lived through a lot of things over the last 15 years from pandemics to 
Brexit to Eurozone crisis to financial crisis to now recession to war. And so I feel like a lot of these businesses have gotten into a rhythm where running it through a crisis almost feels like the recurring status quo. The management teams have been trained to get ahead of those issues in, in a positive way. So what we've seen is that good strategies have been funded. You know, we've been quite pleased with the fundraising we've done over the last 12 months. I think it has had a little bit of luck around where you are in the cycle. So it was clearly easier to fundraise in 2019 than when no one could travel in 2020. And then if you were just off cycle on the timing, obviously fundraising in 21 and 22 was easier than starting a new product in this liquidity denominator effect reduction period of 2023, et cetera. So part of it is you try to get your cycle right. And part of it is you try and get your client base diversified and right. And hopefully the combination of those things leads you to an effective capital raising capability. I'm keen to ask whether Louis thinks today's environment feels a bit like some other period of the past. Does he look back and think, this feels like a particular year or a particular period all over again? Or is it a unique set of circumstances we're looking at today? I think the element of interest rates rising the way they have done do feel familiar. I mean, whether you talk about what happened in the 70s, which is probably the most acute raise we've had in our recent lifetimes, or we had many versions of it in the 80s and the early 90s, and we had a mini version of it, you know, as you know, between 05 and 07. That element of what is the consequential effect of interest rate rises does feel familiar and echoes the past. The two things that feel different this time. One is just the level of momentum and liquidity that existed prior to the raises. I think the combination of COVID stimulus and loose monetary policy taken together and compounded left a two-way tension that is not as normally the case in the sense that you had this huge tailwind of liquidity and stimulus, and now you've got this headwind of rising interest rates where you would normally have a muscle memory of what to do with the rising interest rates, it's harder to figure out how that will manifest itself given the tailwind. And then the second thing, which I find is a profound change this time, is it just feels like there's a structural shortage of labor. I mean, when you go around all the different countries, and we have 2,500 employees and operate in many countries, but whether we go through our investor countries, our operating countries, and so on, where I travel for work to you know, the U.S. or where my investors are based, et cetera. In every walk of life, whether it's the restaurant that no longer opens for lunch on a Tuesday or whether it's, you know, supply chains in the construction industry that are hopelessly behind. I mean, it's just in every walk of life and even out in Asia where historically labor seemed abundant, there just feels like we've hit this inflection point in the geographic, demographic curves where there's a structural shortage of labor. And I think the combination of rising interest rates offsetted by the tailwind that will eventually peter out if liquidity is taken out of the system, but with this new factor of feeling like birth rates have declined, immigration has been affected, and the inefficiencies that have come into the labor market, and then all the tensions and strikes and all the things we've seen in the UK that have manifested from that as well as all the delays and supply chain issues and so on. I think that's a challenging area, and I think that'll be the more noticeable phenomenon alongside the monetary features. And how that 
interplays is something I think one has to watch very carefully because I, I don't think that was part of our prior learning when we hark back to just the simple, you know, we had a commodity shock or interest rates rose or a war or a recession. I mean, this is a time where people talk about recession, talk about downturns in what still looks like a very hot labor market with conspicuous labor shortages. I mean, that's just not what the textbooks say is how it's supposed to work, right? So I think that's the area that I focus on and try and figure out how that's going to manifest itself in a way that's investment relevant, because I do think that's different this time than the recent comparators to the 70s or the 80s or, or the 05 to 07 period. That was the second part of the European Debt Opportunity Series with Arrow Global's Zach Louie. And that's all for today. If you want to hear more episodes of Spotlight, you can check us out wherever you listen to podcasts or at any of PDI Group's various titles online. I'm Andy Thompson of PDI. Thanks for listening.